0: Good morning church. It's good to see you. Good to worship with you. It was a great time of singing songs to the Lord. Um, I'm not sure if I have croissant on me. My son back there had a croissant. And he was like getting it all over my shoulders. But uh, amidst that, I still was worshiping God. And I loved hearing the voices of the church just cry out, hallelujah. Um, So if you know me or know a little bit about me, you know where me and Pastor Daniel came from, a church called Harvest in Riverside. And um, when I was ordained as a minister there, I felt like I got thrown to the deep end of pastoral ministry, partly because the church we came from had 8,000 regular attenders. So there was no shortage of ministry opportunity. So couple that with the main responsibilities of dedicating ourselves to the study of God's Word and to praying, there was so many other responsibilities, whether it be leading other different ministries, all kinds of different ministries, but also things like marriage counseling, uh, memorials, uh, all kinds of types of counseling, all of which had their own learning curve. I was thinking about my first year as a pastor at Harvest, and I remember that I did seven weddings, eight memorials, and wait for it, one quinceanera? Is that how you say it? Close enough? Yes. Okay. The R sounds like a T. Just go with that. Um, yes, I even did one of those, and that, was how, that one had a learning curve as well. But out of all the responsibilities that the Lord, like, put in front of me at my time and my season at Harvest, the church Harvest in Riverside, the one with the steepest learning curve was grief, grief counseling. Counseling or ministering to those who were grieving. I remember meeting with families who had, lost, who had lost loved ones hours before coming into the office, and having to process and sit and do my best to attempt to show the love and the, co- and the comfort and the hope that is only found in Christ. And these weren't just always believers, they were people who didn't have faith. They just heard about our church, didn't know where to go. So they would come in, and we would spend time with them trying to minister and love them. And let me tell you, it was so hard, and it still is hard. It is challenging, difficult, rewarding, but difficult to minister to those who have lost loved ones. Because you know what? Their world has been flipped completely upside down. Things just don't make sense. Now, I'm grateful that I had some pastors who were just faithful ministers of the gospel, and they, would t- they took me under their wing. Uh, they would take me on hospital visits. They would take me to go visit families who have lost loved ones, and they did a really good job at teaching me and showing me how to discern what to say, what scriptures to share, when it was appropriate to reach out and hold somebody's hand or give somebody a hug, and oftentimes... When it was appropriate just to sit, to be quiet, to be present, to be interceding through prayer, to just be available for families who need you. Now, in the first year, I remember one particular story, and without getting into the details, um, this lady, this grandma, had called our office, and she had told our, my secretary that, that her grandson had passed away, early 20s. And she said that, hey, I know that he knew Pastor Ryan, and so I'd like to meet with him. So she came down the day of this tragic passing, and I met with her and grieved together with her because I did know this person well. The following day, his mom and dad came down, and I was there to minister to them and do my best to attempt to show the love and comfort and hope that's found in Christ. Later that week, his younger sister came in. And I was able to meet with her and talk to her as well about the hope that's found in Christ. And we ended up meeting for six months uh, straight. So it was, and, and they decided to not meet together. It was individual counseling moments because they were all trying to grieve separately along with bringing them together. And I remember one time as, you know, as a minister, I was trying to walk them through uh, what it means as far as God's plan, God's goodness, God's justice, God's love, walking him through Romans eight twenty eight theology, knowing, believing, and trusting that God has a plan, that he will work it out for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and really trying to drive that home. Again, being a younger pastor and really not having any firm understanding of what it actually felt like to lose somebody. I remember this mom, she was very honest, and she said to me, I know that God has a plan in this. I know. I know the Bible tells me that he will work this out for good, but from her perspective, she said, but I just don't see it. I don't see the good in this. In fact, she saw the opposite of good. Good. How could God allow this? What possible good is he going to draw out of this, out of all of our pain? Because for her, her son's passing just felt pointless. He was too young. Why did he have to die? He didn't need to die. God could have done something different to work his plan out. Why this way? What do you do when what you believe about God his character, his goodness, his good plan, what do you do when that doesn't match up with what you see or what you feel or what you experience? If God is who he says he is, why would he allow such ungodly things to happen to godly people? Here in the book of Habakkuk, we see a prophet who is wrestling with these very same questions. And what we immediately learn from this this prophet this morning is when we have these types of questions, these questions that seemingly don't really have answers, we ought to go to God with them. Not run from God, not hold the questions in, but to go to God honestly. And by His grace, God will give us the answer we need. Maybe not the answer that we want, But the answer that we need to help preserve us and help us to endure through the pain and the confusion. Now, last week we learned that Habakkuk was a prophet of God during a period of time where God's people were embracing all kinds of wickedness. We learned that in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 4, which Pastor Daniel went over last week. If you didn't go, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back into our podcast, get that groundwork done with Habakkuk 1. It was an amazing sermon We'd love to have you do that and then jump back in. And we have, this is, just to give you like spoiler alert, this is a three-part series, okay? There is one more sermon after this that we're planning on to finish out the book of Habakkuk. But anyway, go back and get that if you haven't. Now, when Habakkuk, this prophet, when he looked around his, at his nation, all he saw was violence. He saw destruction. He saw injustice. In essence, God's people had forsaken godliness, And Habakkuk had felt that God had forsaken them. So he cried out to God with a legitimate complaint back in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And this is the gist of his complaint. He says this, How can God sit idle while the wicked devour the righteous? How can he do nothing? God, if you are good, if you are just, if you are righteous, if you are holy, which I believe you are, how can it be that you seem to not care about what's going on with your people? This perplexed Habakkuk because what he knew to be true about God's heart towards his people was not lining up with God's perceived behavior. So Habakkuk cast this honest complaint towards the heavens, and last week he saw that God had answered him. First, God answered him this way. He tells Habakkuk that he's not, only, that he's not standing idle. God is actually doing something. He is doing a work That Habakkuk wouldn't believe even if God had revealed all of the details of it. That's the comforting part of of God's answer to Habakkuk that we heard last week. God was doing a work. But then, God shares a little more about this unbelievable work that he's doing. And this is the part about how he was raising up an extremely wicked and terrifying nation as an instrument to judge Judah, which is Habakkuk's nation or tribe. And this judgment that God's talking about would not be just a slap on the wrist. He literally describes it in chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, as this nation being raised up to crush Judah, to utterly crush Judah. Now, as you can imagine, if you are someone who are, who's having a crisis of faith and struggling to reconcile God's character with God's behavior, this didn't actually help. And you can imagine this didn't help with the back of struggle again to see the heart of God in this circumstance. So he goes back to the Lord and cries out, and this time his complaint isn't revolving around what God is doing or not doing, like he did in his first complaint. This time around, his complaint is anchored in how God is going to actually do what he's doing, how he will carry out his plan. But before he complains about what he doesn't know, he takes a moment to reaffirm what he does know about God to help build his argument in his complaint, okay? So, let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Let's stop there. Here, Habakkuk shares three things he believes about God, that he believes are completely true. And he starts with... A rhetorical question, and that is, are you not from everlasting? Are you not eternal? Now, Habakkuk believes the answer to this question is yes. He believes that God is eternal. He believes that all things have been created, have been created by God and through him, and all things submit to his righteous rule. Habakkuk believes this. We have no reason to believe that he doubted these fundamental beliefs concerning the Lord because Habakkuk was raised to know and love the Lord. And knowing Habakkuk, knowing that he was designated as a prophet, which means a mouthpiece for the Lord, he spoke on behalf of the Lord, he delivered God's word to his people. We know that Habakkuk didn't just know God, but that he was known by God. God knew Habakkuk, and Habakkuk trusted God and his word. So Habakkuk believes God is from everlasting, and he believes that God has ordained this coming judgment through Babylon from the beginning. It was ordained from eternity past. God was not taken off guard by Judah's waywardness. God wasn't surprised and then just looked around and said, where's the next dominating power? Let's just use them to judge Judah. No, that's not how God was working. Habakkuk acknowledges in verse 12 that from eternity past, God ordained Babylon as judgment, he has established them as reproof, verse 12 tells us. Habakkuk believed this because this is what the Lord told him, and he received it by faith. The second thing Habakkuk also believes is that God is holy. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? God's people have had a very clear understanding of God's holiness because they had to deal with temple worship, which was a system of worship that God had set up for his people so that, they could, so that he could dwell with them and they could intercede and be with him. The problem with that is God is so holy that if anyone enters into God's holy presence, unclean or unholy, they will surely die. No one could enter God's presence or else they would be done because God is so pure, he's so righteous, he's so powerful, he's so good. And because we are not those things... We cannot be in his presence. It would be like us flying towards the sun. We wouldn't even be able to get close before we were burned up by the intense heat that the sun puts off. In Exodus, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, God told him to not come close because he was unholy. If he would have come close, surely Moses would have died. Habakkuk believes that God is holy and, that will, and will have nothing to do with sin, evil, or wickedness. The third thing we see here is Habakkuk also believes that God will preserve his people. This is important. God will preserve his people. This is why he writes in verse 12, We shall not die. That may sound like an odd statement at first. Maybe even almost an overconfident statement. We shall not die. He trusts that God will keep his promises to preserve a remnant of his people. Certainly Habakkuk had promises in mind such as 1 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it is pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Or Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your father that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. And lastly, most certainly, Habakkuk had in mind the Davidic covenant, where God promised that the Messiah would come through the descendant of David and the tribe of Judah, his own tribe, and would establish a kingdom not temporarily, but forever, 2 Samuel 7 tells us. These promises were passed down in ancient Jewish storytelling and in the Torah, and Habakkuk would have known and cherished these promises. Surely God would preserve Judah. Why? Because God said he would. This is what Habakkuk believes to be true about God. Quick recap. He believes that God is eternal, that he's established his plans from eternity past, God is holy, he is without sin, more than that, sin has no place near him, and that God is faithful to his people. He will not let them be destroyed. This is the solid footing received by faith that Habakkuk has entering into this complaint. But now, it seems this solid footing, or should I say this faith, has been shaken by God's plan, or at least by the hearing of God's plan, his plan of judgment. And it caused him to question what he knows about God here in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. He says this, you, this is Habakkuk talking to God, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Habakkuk has two problems with God here. One, how can a holy God use such unholy tools to accomplish his work? How can a holy God use such unholy tools to accomplish his work? He says, You are of pure eyes and to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? Here's his rub. God, if you're holy, how can you be involved in raising up the wicked nation and allowing them to kill and steal and destroy? The Babylonians are the antithesis of your character. They're evil. They're the opposite of holy, and this is a problem. Habakkuk is unable to comprehend how God is able to use such unholy tools to accomplish his perfectly good work and remain holy while doing it to keep his hands clean. He is saying to God, your eyes are too pure to behold this evil. Everything I know about your holiness tells me so. You can't look at wrong without acting, let alone ordain this wrong to fulfill your righteous plan. How are you able to handle this? How are you able to handle this wicked and still remain holy and still be the God who I know you to be? What am I missing here? What Habakkuk is hearing from God does not compute with his understanding of who God is. His second complaint is this Why are you judging us with a nation that is far more deserving of judgment than us? <laughs> I mean, look at them. Habakkuk asks, Why do you, Ali, look as traitors at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's talking about himself. He's talking about his tribe, his people. He sees his people as more righteous than the other guys. Now his first problem involves God being too holy to raise up Babylon. Now his problem is that he thinks Judah is too holy to be judged by Babylon. He is struggling to understand why they are being judged right now because Babylon clearly is the more wicked nation. Why are you letting them succeed here? Why are you using them to judge us? He uses a metaphor here in verses 14 through 17. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. This is a deep sea fishing metaphor. And in this metaphor, Babylon is the ruthless fisherman who is hooking and dragging the surrounding nations out of their land like fish caught in a net against their will. And this implies Death and destruction and despair. And Habakkuk says that the Babylonians find joy in this. He goes on in verse 16 and 17. Therefore, speaking of Babylon, he sacrifices to his nets and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk appeals to God's righteous anger and describing the Babylonians as having zero regard for God. All of their success, all of their victories, all of their spoils, all the acquired power that they have, they credit to themselves. Not to God, not to anybody else. They are a world power because they have made themselves a world power. Habakkuk is pointing out that they do not think that God raised them up for judgment. They believe they've raised themselves up. This is confirmed in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Speaking of the Babylonians, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship themselves. They boast in their own might. And Habakkuk is saying, how can you allow this nation to sweep in and try to steal your glory? I mean, wouldn't the ancient world just mock the God of Israel for not rising up against this nation, especially since this nation will be coming in to crush God's people? How does that make you look, God? It's as if Habakkuk is processing God's response and saying, let me get this straight. You're telling me that you raised this nation up to judge us? They're the ones that need judgment. How can you judge us for our sin with the people that are far more wicked than us? Why aren't you judging them? Why are you letting them off the hook? Again, you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look and stand by as these traitors come in and destroy us? What an interesting change of tone compared to his first complaint. Again, if you were with us last week, remember... First, he was crying out for God to judge his own people because they were wicked. His own nation, he needed God to judge them because they were wayward. He wanted God to course correct him. Now he's heard God's plan on how he will do that, answer his first request, and he's saying, hey, we're not that bad compared to them. Judge them first. If you're a, good, if you're a God of righteousness and justice, let's start there, and you can work your way down to us. Here we're reminded that God shows no partiality in his judgment towards sinners. Or to put it a different way, God does not grade on a curve. Sin must be punished, and sin will reap the judgment of God. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. If you sin, you're a sinner, and every sinner will be called into account The good, the bad, and the wicked, all alike, will be called into account and will face the judgment of God. There is, however, a difference between a righteous sinner and a wicked sinner. A difference between a righteous sinner and a wicked sinner. It's not that one sin won't receive judgment and the other will. The difference is that the righteous sinner's judgment came down on Jesus at the cross. And it is by faith in Jesus that we are made holy to be in God's presence and live. God isn't great on a curve. Sin must be dealt with. And for the Christian, sin was dealt with in the person of Christ. Now Habakkuk is struggling to understand why God is doing things the way he is. Which points back to the original problem that we see in his first complaint. That is that Habakkuk is struggling to reconcile God's heart what he believes about God, again, with God's behavior, what he is seeing God do. So he casts his complaint once again before the Lord and waits for an answer. And he says this, I'm not sure if it's a stubborn tone or what. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I'm not sure if it's I got you God moment or not, or if it's just a faithful I trust you're going to answer me. We don't know how long he waited, but we do know the Lord answered. And what does God have to say to Habakkuk regarding this complaint? I have two answers for you. One, God says, have patience. Have patience. And two, God says, have faith. Have patience and have faith. Habakkuk 2, 2-17. Let us reread this lengthy section so we can get a good understanding as I'm walking us through it. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay Behold, his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Woe to the Chaldeans! Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations, and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations worry themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. The Lord's answer begins with some basic but very important instruction in verse 2. He says, write this down. Record this. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Have patience. What is it that Habakkuk is to wait for? Woe to Babylon, for their judgment is fixed, and it will surely come at my appointed time. Or to say it another way, don't worry about them, they will get theirs. The Lord describes this recompense in verse 6 through 17. Every nation that will be destroyed by Babylon will eventually rise and repay them the same evil. Those who they plunder will rise and plunder them. Those who they took land from will rise and conquer them. Those whose livelihood they destroyed will rise and return the favor. Those who they dishonored and shamed will rise up and disgrace the nation of Babylon, and the world will hear of its fall, and we have. Those whose sons, daughters, mothers, fathers that they were that killed, that, they were, that was killed and were took as slaves, will arise, and they will do the same to Babylon. This isn't karma. This is the eternal and holy king of heaven judging wickedness through human agents just like he's about to do to Israel. This is God's judgment. And it will come as the Lord raises up nations, just and unjust alike, as instruments of judgment against all unrighteousness. In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 26, Isaiah says this about this very thing. He, speaking of God, will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they come like a master who has some very well-trained dogs, just whistles and they're there. God will call them for judgment. Jeremiah fifty-one eleven. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Like a stone thrown in a beehive, the Lord just stirs up these nations to go and execute judgment on his behalf, to fulfill his righteous, his holy, his eternal acts of judgment the lord is telling habakkuk this is what's coming for babylon they will have their fill of shame instead of glory the cup in the lord's right hand will come around to them and that is the cup of judgment and when it does verse 14 the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea this is hearkening back to the flood judgment God says, just wait for it. Write this down, and what I have told you most assuredly will come to pass. Now, it's hard to be patient. (laughs) I got four kids. It's hard to be patient sometimes. But it doesn't take four kids to to work on your patience or to challenge your patience. I mean, just traffic, everyday life. It's hard to be patient. But it's especially hard to be patient in great times of uncertainty. But one thing that helps strengthen our resolve in the area of our patience is the confidence that what we are waiting for will certainly come to pass. That what we are waiting for will certainly come to pass. Church, what God decrees will certainly come to pass. Daniel 4:35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, it was according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And you know what? None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None. What God promises he will surely fulfill, no one can stay his hand. And when we struggle to connect the dots between who we believe God to be through his revealed word with what we see him or what we see him allowing to happen around us, The Lord first tells us to have patience. I am doing a work. I will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The second answer God gives Habakkuk is found in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. What is it that Habakkuk has been struggling with throughout this book, so far? Is that he can't square what he believes through faith with what he sees by sight. He cannot justify the two. First, his first complaint, he essentially says to God, I know you're just, I know you're righteous. Why then are you standing idle while the wicked plague our people? His second complaint here. I know that you're eternal, I know that you're holy, I know that all that you have decreed will come to pass, why then are you backing an evil, unjust, godless nation that most likely will destroy us? What he believes about God is not squaring with what he is seeing God do or what God is allowing to happen. So we ask for clarity. But in this letter, or this book, or this complaint, God doesn't give it to him. God doesn't tell him all the details of his work because he wouldn't even believe it if he heard it. That's what God said in chapter 1. But Habakkuk is not left out an answer. Here again, he is simply reminded in verse 4 that the righteous shall live by faith. You will live by faith. Now this verse serves as a contrast between those who trust in themselves, the Babylonians, whose soul is puffed up and not upright within him, the person who trusts that he can save himself, he can pull himself up by his own bootstraps, he can trust in his own might and his strength and his moral uprightness, to which God says, Woe to this person, for they will be weighed and found wanting on the day of judgment. But the person who trusts in the Lord for his salvation will live. God is telling his people through the prophet Habakkuk that life, Is given and sustained through faith in Him. Now, a few hundred years ago, excuse me, a few hundred years later, four to six hundred years later, the Apostle Paul quoted this verse here in Habakkuk in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says this For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by their faith. This is the biblical foundation of the gospel. Faith in God. More specifically, faith in Christ. Trusting in Jesus' life and His death and his resurrection, trusting that he paid for our sins on the cross, that we might live and have life in him, and have life abundantly for all eternity. Remember when God told backup that he was doing a work, that if he actually revealed the plan to him, that he wouldn't believe it? I wonder, I wonder if God would have told him the whole, if he would have told him the whole plan, if verse 4, here in backup chapter 2, would read more like this, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by grace through faith in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, in context, Habakkuk is crying out to God, telling him that he is struggling to see God's justice, his holiness, in this revealed plan that he's now shared to him. God says, be patient. God says, have faith. First patience, now faith. Now, this isn't the only place in the Bible where patience and faith are seen hand in hand. Interestingly enough, the Apostle James tells us that when faith is tested and sustained, patience is the product which empowers endurance through trials, times of uncertainty, times of hurt and pain, times where you feel like things just don't make sense. They're not adding up. In James chapter 1, 2 through 4, he says this: Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James went on to teach that when patience endures to the end, its reward is God's presence forever. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I think the principle here is simple. Patiently wait and humbly trust in God. Those who do will enter into the glorious presence of their Lord. Patiently wait and trust in God in all things. Why? Because God has promised this to those who love him. And God keeps his word. This is God's answer to Habakkuk. Wait and see. Watch me do all I say I would do. Have faith in who I am and not what you see. Know that I am not idle. Know that I am doing a work. Know that I will judge the wicked. Wait for it. Live by faith. That God ends his response with a hopeful comparison between himself and the gods of the world in verses 18 through 20. God says, This, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe or warning to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I believe this comparison is meant to cause Habakkuk to rest from all of his concerns and worries and to remember who God is. To remember that if God is for him, that nothing will stand against him, because there is no one standing. There's only one God. All these other gods are false, made by men, men who trust in themselves, in their own might, in their own ability to save themselves. The Lord, on the other hand, is in his holy temple. And when he calls to account, the whole earth will stand silent before him. Next week, we're going to see how Habakkuk responds to God's answer. It's going to be a goodie, so come back next week. But in conclusion, for us today, when what we see, you and I, throughout our Christian life, through hardships and trials, through death and sickness, when what we see doesn't line up with what we know about God, for better or for worse, God tells us to trust His Word. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God also tells us to trust his heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We all know where our understanding gets us. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Let's pray.